all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is the word of God. Great, thanks Mary. Well, we're into our fourth out of five weeks on our series on the Reformation, uh, which affirms that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as revealed in Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. Today we're looking at how we're saved by grace alone and how John Calvin uh, contributed to the Reformation in our understanding of God's Word. So once again, we're transported back to the 16th century, to a world where there was effectively only one church, the Roman Catholic Church, and one Pope, the Bishop of Rome. So let me pray for us as we get into God's Word. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much uh, for the Reformation and for uh, the men who fought uh, for the Gospel and gave their lives in doing so. Uh, we pray, Lord, that uh, as 21st century Christians, uh, that we may continue to uh, bear witness to the Gospel that saves us by grace alone. And that as we open up scripture uh, this morning, as we're transported back to the 16th century, as we hear from your word and remember the work of Calvin, uh, that you will continue to help us to stand firm in the gospel of your grace alone. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Highway robbery. That's what one of my kids yelled out as we were driving down High Street, past McDonald's on the way home about a week ago. Highway robbery. We're heading home, just drove past McDonald's, and we noticed a boy with a hooded grey jacket jumper running down the street for his dear life and wondering what's going on until we saw in his hands about this many cups of McDonald's coffee cups. Now you might be wondering why on earth is he running for his dear life holding a stack of McDonald's coffee cups? Well, if you're like me and live near McDonald's and you have kids who love McDonald's and you who secretly love McDonald's but won't admit to it, then you know that currently McDonald's has a promotion going on, the Monopoly promotion. You have one in four chance of winning anything from free food to a brand new car. And so this boy wearing a grey hooded jumper had essentially stolen a lot of French fries or frozen Coke because the chances of him winning a car is pretty much nil. Now, say this happened in the 16th century in Europe. And if this boy was your son or nephew, your brother or friend, what would you say to him when he came home with a whole stack of McDonald's coffee cups? Well, if you were like most people in Christendom at that time, 
You saw the Pope as your father and the church as your mother. You tell the dear boy, go to church, confess your sins to the priest, and do penance. And so the boy rocks up at your local church, goes to the confession booth, confesses his sins to the priest. Uh, the priest listens, questions, uh, uh, asks of the details of what was going through his mind. Why did you do it? What, what, what tempted you? What gave you uh, gave into temptation? Why, why are you doing these things? The priest will ask all these uh, invasive questions to understand how the boy had sinned, so that he would then be able to make judgment on the boy and declare God's judgment and the penance that he will now require to do to atone for his own sins to right the wrongs, to make it up to God. And so the new St. Joseph Baltimore Catechism says this, The priest gives us penance after confession that we may make some atonement to God for our sins, receive help to avoid them in the future, and make some satisfaction for the temporal punishment due to them. So depending on the severity of the boy's sins as determined by the priest, he might then have to go away and say the Hail Mary ten times or uh, fast for two days or give a certain amount of money to the church. And when he does these things, he pays the debt for his sins and God will be satisfied. Now, if this doesn't sound like salvation by grace alone, it isn't. Uh, the Catechism of the Catholic Church makes this clear. It is through the sacrament of penance that the baptized can be reconciled with God and with the church. This sacrament of penance is necessary for salvation for those who have fallen after baptism. A penance is so important to the Roman Catholics that without it, salvation is impossible. There's no forgiveness of sins without confession and penance. Uh, we see this in St. Alphonse uh, Liguri's writings. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church viewed uh, Alphonse so faithful that he was declared a saint after he died. In his writings, he tells of an abbess, uh, that is, uh, the head nun of an abbess of nuns. Uh, she was so full of good works and almsgiving and had a reputation of a saint. But she wasn't made a saint after she died. She was declared to be one who went to hell. Why? Despite her good works, despite being the abbess, why was she sent to hell? While Fonzi explains, she failed to confess one sin she had committed in her youth. One sin she forgot to confess, and so she was sent to hell. So you might be wondering, well, doesn't the Roman Catholic Church believe in grace? How does grace fit into their system of beliefs? Well, the sacrament of penance, like the other six sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church, they would say are a means of grace. So, for example, when you're an infant, uh, you would have been baptized, and the purpose was to wash away original sin. That's grace. But every time you sin after you've been baptized, you need more grace to atone for the new sins you've committed. And so you need more grace. You need to get grace to atone for your sins. And so how do you get Grace, you go to Mass. You look at the bread and wine, which you're told is literally the body and blood of Jesus. And when you see the body and blood of Jesus, as it were, you get grace. You go to confession, you do penance, you get grace. 
From the very beginning of your life to the very end of your life, you need the church to dispense God's grace to help you get to purgatory in the best shape possible. You see, a Roman Catholic wasn't someone who could rest in God's grace, but someone who needed to continually receive God's grace through the sacraments to help them atone for their own sins and become a better person. It's a bit like coffee. I know it's not a perfect illustration, but please Hanging there with me. Uh, imagine you've got an assignment due tomorrow. It's worth 100% of the subject, uh, but you've been slack. Uh, you ha- you've done some research, uh, you, 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 you've got some thoughts, but the 3,000-word essay is not going to write itself. And so you're bracing for an all-nighter. Uh, you're not going to sleep until you've written every last word for your essay and submitted it. But how are you going to stay up all night? You love your sleep. Well, thankfully, you live in the cafe capital of Australia, and you head to the uh, cafe down the road, grab a coffee, and suddenly you're more awake, you're more alert, and, you, you, and so you're focused. You start churning out words, you write the intro, you write a couple of paragraphs, a couple of hours later, you've got a thousand words on the paper. But then you're feeling tired, you're losing concentration, you look over and you see your bed, and, you, and you've got your name all over it. You're so tempted, you just climb into bed. But you don't give in to temptation, you need more caffeine. You need more grace, as it were. And so you head down to the cafe that's 24-7. You grab another coffee. You're just going into the cafe. The aroma of the coffee beans just awakens you. And so you order another coffee. And this time, you don't just go for the regular. You go for the one with the extra shot. It costs a bit more, but it'll be worth it. Now, I know it's not a perfect illustration, but it gives you a sense of how grace is dispensed in the Roman Catholic Church. Just as coffee gives you caffeine to help you stay alert and awake to write your essay, so in Roman Catholicism, God's grace is a metaphysical liquid. Uh, It's a liquid that God pours into you to give you what you need to atone for your own sins, to help you keep going, to keep pressing forward, to become a better person, to help yourself be better. Uh, Without coffee, you wouldn't be able to do the all-night, and without God's grace through the sacraments, you're not going to be able to atone for your sins. You're not going to be able to better yourself and become a better person. That's why the seven sacraments are so important to the Roman Catholics because the seven sacraments are like the seven taps of God's grace. And only a priest has the authority and the right to turn on the tap of God's grace. And so when you need God's grace to help you in your life, to become a better person, to atone for your sins, you go to church and the priest, if he wills, turns on God's tap of grace, God's grace to help you atone for your own sins, to become a better person. That's why Martin Luther never liked it. I never felt like he could do enough to atone for his own sins. In fact, he took it upon himself to even whip himself, to hurt himself, to inflict wounds upon himself that blood would ooze from his body. Well, what you see in the picture are actually what, what Roman Catholics can buy. Whips to whip themselves as part of doing penance. So he would whip himself, Luther. Blood would ooze so that he might suffer with Christ. And in doing so, he would hope that he would atone for his own sins and God will be satisfied. In 1510, 
before the Reformation movement began, his superiors uh, sent him on a pilgrimage to Rome. He'd walk 700 miles from Germany to Rome through the cold winter over and down the Alps uh, to, to go to Rome so that he might find God's favor. And while he was there, he went to the Scala Santa or the Holy Steps. Uh, these steps are sacred, believed by the Roman Catholics to be brought from the Holy Land in Jerusalem. They were the very steps of Pontius Pilate, the very steps that Jesus stood when he was condemned to death. They were brought from Jerusalem all the way to Rome. And so now pilgrims from all four corners of the world would come to Rome to climb these steps in the hope of, uh, of obtaining indulgences to shorten their time in purgatory. And in case you're wondering, those steps are still there. You can still go to Rome today and climb those steps. Half a million pilgrims do it every year to receive indulgences. And so just like 500 years ago, just like Luther did in 1510, on bended knees, he'd climb every step, the 28 steps, and you see those people on bended knees. On each step, they stop. They recite the Lord's Prayer. And then they climb to the next step and recite the Lord's Prayer again. And one by one, as they do that, they receive an indulgence. They receive time off from purgatory. But as Luther was climbing these steps on his bended knees, as he recites the Lord's Prayer, a Bible verse springs to mind. A Bible verse from Habakkuk and in Paul's letters, that the just will live by faith. And here was Luther trying to live by works and not by faith. He was Luther trying to earn his salvation and not by trusting in the promises of God. The just will live by faith. So Luther gets up, walks down the stairs, passes all these people who are still on their bended knees, reciting the Lord's Prayer. He turns his back on salvation by merit as he turns to Christ for salvation by grace. And so on that note, why don't we now turn to the Bible and see what the Bible teaches about salvation by grace. Now today's passage is Ephesians chapter 2 and it can be broken up into three sections. The first section is in verses 1 to 3. It tells us that we're totally depraved. You and I are totally depraved. We're all dead in our sins. We can't help but sin and we deserve God's judgment. So verses 1 to 3, as you... You were dead. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the rule of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us, see Paul includes himself in this, lived among them at one time, gratified the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath, of the full anger and judgment of God. So now the second section, so that sets the scene. We're all dead in sin. We all deserve God's punishment. The second section now, verses 4 to 7, tells us that well, what God has done about it. He's made us alive with Christ, Paul tells us. He saved us by his grace. Verses 4 to 5, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. That is, God's grace saves us from death to life. 
But notice now from verse 6, Paul doesn't then go on to say, well, after God saves you by grace, you're going to have to ask for more grace and go get more grace to become a good person, to atone for your own sins. You need more grace after grace to be accepted into heaven. No, no, Paul doesn't say that. But instead, what does he say? He says that when God saves us, he saves us completely. And that includes being so united with Jesus that you're now in heaven with him. So verse 6, And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. What this means is that you don't have to do penance to become a better person before God will accept you. Spiritually, you're already seated in heaven with Jesus. And you don't need to go to purgatory and suffer through the fiery judgment of God to purge your sins before God will accept you into heaven. Because you're already in the presence of God. You'll always be in the presence of God. You see, Roman Catholics feel they need God's help so they can help themselves. But the Bible teaches that we can't help ourselves because we were dead in our sins. A dead person can't help themselves. They're dead. And so what we need isn't God's grace to help us. We need God's grace to save us. And that's exactly what he did. He saved us, not because of anything we did, but because of his great love towards us, for his mercy towards us, for his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. You see, friends, God's grace is his free gift, his undeserved and unmerited favor towards us in his Son. That is, to put it simply, God's grace is him giving us Jesus. God's grace is him giving us Jesus, who lived the life we can't, to die the death we deserve, so that in him we might have the righteousness of God. And if we think for a moment that it's because our faith saves us, well, that's our work. That's what we do. That's what we contribute, our faith. Then Paul goes on to make it very clear in the third section of today's passage, even the faith you have, even the trust you have in Jesus is a gift from God. The faith you have is not from yourself, but it is from God himself. Verse 8, for it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. You're saved by grace. The mechanism in which you're saved is through faith, by putting your trust in Jesus. And this is not from yourselves. The trust you have in Jesus is not even from you. It's a gift of God. Even the faith we have to believe is grace from God, is a gift from God, is what God has given us and not what, what we have conjured up in ourselves to, so that we might believe. Not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, creating Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You see, friends, Roman Catholics have got it the wrong way around. We're not saved by good works. We're saved to do good works. And even our faith is a gift from God. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Because if you're dead, you're incapable of anything let alone trust in God. 
That's why the Bible says that salvation belongs to the Lord. Everything from first to last, whole and entire, past, present and future, everything that's involved in bringing anyone from death to in sin to life in glory belongs to God. It's God alone who raises the dead and gives faith. It's God alone who calls and keeps. It's God alone who redeems and justifies. It's God alone who sanctifies and glorifies. As John Calvin makes it clear in his commentary on this passage, faith then brings a man empty to God, with nothing in our hands to God, that he may be filled with the blessings of Christ. And so he adds, not of yourselves, that claiming nothing for themselves, they may acknowledge God alone as the author of their salvation. The Reformation began with Martin Luther's rediscovery of the doctrine of justification by faith alone. It sent shock waves throughout the continent, including France, where Calvin was born in 1509. Calvin grew up, as most did at that time, a child of Christendom. He looked to the Pope as his father and to church as his mother. But when Luther's teachings reached France, Calvin's life changed from the superstitions of the papacy to the grace of the gospel. Calvin had great respect for Martin Luther, who was 26 years his elder. Calvin ended up fleeing France to escape persecution. He wanted to seek refuge in Basel, but settled in Geneva at Farrell's bidding. When Calvin was just 26 years old, he had published his first edition of the Institutes of the Christian Religion. But it would take him to the end of his life in 1559 to finish it. What started off as six chapters of the doctrines of God became a tome of 80 chapters and has become the textbook for Reformed theology ever since. And why did Calvin write this? Why did he spend his life writing and compiling the institutes of the Christian religion? Well, he said, I laboured at the task of writing the institutes, especially for our Frenchmen, for I saw that many were hungering and thirsting after Christ, and yet that only a few had any real knowledge of him. And in case you think theology has no application, you'd be wrong. Calvin says this as well, the whole sum of godliness and whatever it is necessary to know about saving doctrine is covered in the Institutes. Calvin covered such topics as justification and redemption, the church and sacraments, predestination and election, but the overarching theme was the sovereignty of God. And that includes the indefectibility of grace. You see, as we've seen, Roman Catholics could never know if they'll ever be good enough for God. They had no assurance of salvation because it was all up to them to atone for their sins to make themselves good enough for God. But what Calvin saw in Scripture... He taught pastorally to give believers comfort and assurance that God will never withdraw his grace from the elect. Those whom God chooses to save will be saved. This was later distilled at the Synod of Dort in response to Jacob Arminius' criticism. It became known as the five points of Calvinism, often referred to as the doctrines of grace. You might have heard of the acronym TULIP, which stands for Total Depravity, Unconditional Election, Limited Atonement, Irresistible Grace, 
perseverance of the saints. They summarize the doctrines of grace. Friends, salvation by grace alone is good news, isn't it? That all our sins, past, present and future, have all been forgiven us by God. And it also means we don't have to have a confession box here at church. I don't have to sit in it all day and you don't have to come one by one telling me all of your sins in great detail all the time. You don't have to buy that whip and whip yourself. You don't have to buy a rosary to say the Hail Mary. For our sins have been forgiven in God through Jesus. Because when we sin, we confess our sins to God our Father directly, not to a priest, an intermediary. For we go to God our Father who forgives our sins in our Lord Jesus Christ, our great high priest. But like anything good, our sinful tendency is to abuse it, to cheapen grace like the libertines and think that because we're saved by grace, then we can go on to sin. Because it doesn't matter. If we're saved by grace, we can do whatever we want. We sin as much as we want. God's going to save us anyway. We're saved by grace. We live the life we want, not the life God wants. And that's exactly what the Christians in Rome were thinking in the first century. There's nothing new under the sun. And how did Paul respond to them? In Romans chapter 6, he says, What shall we say then? Shall we go on, go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means, Paul says, we are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Friends, we don't, we don't live in sin. We live in Christ. And so we don't go on sinning. We live for Christ. You see, when we've been freed from doing good works to be saved, we're now free to love God and to love one another because we're saved. And so we can turn the other cheek and walk the extra mile. We can honour God with our bodies and bear one another's burdens. We can love God with our whole heart, mind, soul and strength and love our neighbours as ourselves. For God first loved us and gave his Son as a ransom for many. So friends, let's live in joy and freedom knowing God's good and wonderful grace, knowing that if we die tonight, we'll be with Jesus. We'll be with Jesus. If no ifs, no buts, if we put our faith in Jesus alone for the salvation of our souls, we're already spiritually with him in the heavenly realms now. Not because we're worthy, not because we're sinless, but because God's grace covers a multitude of sins. Friends, let's not cheapen God's grace. Let's live in God's grace by living for Christ today and forever. Amen.